0: today's guest on the podcast is Katie Arnold. Katie is the author of the new book, Running Home, but she's also a ultra running champion. She won the 2018 Leadville Championship trail race. I don't know if it's called championship. I probably just made some noob, like (laughs) ultra running, like wrong name. Leadville. Anyone in the running community knows Leadville. Okay. She won top female in Leadville and 11th overall out of all the people. So pretty incredible story. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, Just I love the message about taking care of yourself and finding that outlet that allows you to be a better human, a better employee, wife, mother, whatever your labels are, and how finding movement and finding that ability to be in your body is really a key to achieving what you desire. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Katie Arnold. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the same 24 hours podcast. I'm your host Meredith Atwood. I'm super excited about today's guest. Katie Arnold is here. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you, Meredith? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just hoping the um, lawn mowers don't come today. They they know when it's podcast day and they like to mow the lawn. So.
1: <laughs> I've got motorboats in the background. Oh, so motorboats. Perfect. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Well, I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited to talk to you about all the things and um, especially your new book, Running Home, which um, we were talking about before we got on. We are book neighbors in several book bookstores across the country, right next to each other on the shelves. Little, Great. Twinsy books. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your childhood and your um, kind of what made you want to write this book.
1: Yeah. Um, so... Running Home really was born out of um losing my father. Um he this was I guess going on 9 years ago in in 2010, um shortly after my um second daughter was born, my dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer and um he started declining really rapidly. Like as fast as my baby was growing, my father was dying and um, you know if you have kids or if, if any of our listeners have kids or have gone through grief those are two really intense experiences having a new baby and and being in that grief kind of bubble as i describe it in running home and it was just a tumultuous you know very emotional time and um the way my grief manifested after losing my father was um, it came out as anxiety so that I was afraid I was dying too. And um, yeah, it was, I I hadn't experienced anxiety like that. And I think it's, you know, now that I've gone through it, I understand that it's not uncommon. And it also is tied into being a mother, which I write a lot about in running home is is mortality, right? Like you can get away without, with thinking you're not mortal, like everyone else, while you're young. And I mean, I think that's what youth is, you just kind of going about your business, not believing that it's going to happen to you. But then when you have a child, suddenly, right, it's like this big wake up call. And um, life seems so much more precious. And so combine that with losing, you know, a very close parent, um, it was a pretty. Um, turbulent time. And, and so I tried lots of different things to ease my anxiety. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, I'm not there right now, but that's where I live. And um, uh, there's lots of alternative healers. And I, you know, over the course of about 18 months, I probably tried, you know, all of them. And some of the healing methods worked, you know, helped with the anxiety, but others didn't. And, um, but the thing that really did work the best was running. Yeah. And running long distances and, and, and into the wilderness. So, I've always been, um, you know, a big lover of nature and, and mountains and trails. And so, I'm not your typical road runner. Um, so, it wasn't just going out and pounding the pavement, it was really moving on my own two feet through the backcountry and through the mountains. We have some really rugged, remote. Back country, right out our door in Santa Fe, um, mountains that go up to twelve and a half thousand feet, and I was just running alone through the woods, and and that's you know where I felt the most relief from this anxiety. It's sort of counterintuitive because I was so afraid of dying and leaving my right, children, and you're in the woods alone. <laughs> I'm going out every day, like deep into the back country where there's animals and you know hazards and weather and um but so it didn't make sense on one level but then it did completely make sense and this you know just looping back to your question about my childhood I've always been a runner and okay, I was
0: going to ask you that yeah, yeah
1: running has always been um this very private personal thing for me I didn't compete as a child I didn't I wasn't on track or cross country um but I always ran and um I started running when I was seven, um, just on a lark, like on the the suggestion of my father, he just, he's like, Hey, do you want to run this 10 K race? Um, it was near his farm in Virginia where he lived. And my dad was not a runner. I love this part of the story because my dad wasn't a runner and he didn't have aspirations for me to become a runner. Right. It was the seventies. It was before parents, like, you know, um
0: but you had the cool headbands, right? <laughs> I had yeah, but it was before parents really kind of like
1: thrust their own ambitions on their children like right. we do now. So my dad just suggested it. And because my parents were separated and I didn't get to see my dad very much, also another thing that's different now, right? Like divorce, we lived four states away, you know, and we only saw my dad a few times a year. And when he suggested something, it was like let's do it. You know, this is time with dad, let's do it. And, um, so I did the race and my sister and I, um, surely finished dead last, but we did not care. I didn't care when I crossed how the old finish. You? you
0: were seven. Oh, wow. So wow.
1: Smiles for a seven year old. Like you have no, idea what, like that distance is inconceivable to be honest. And so when I crossed the finish line, it was like, and I write about this in the first chapter of running home is like, is that feeling of, Oh, my God, I did it like the this thing I thought was impossible. And I, you know, straggled my way along and I got it done. And it maybe wasn't pretty. But the lasting feeling that I came away with was like, I'm stronger than I think I am. And there's, you know, sort of a beauty and reward in the struggle. And I think that's really where the seeds of my ultra running and my long distance running were planted. Um, as a child and, and so anyway that began my running my love of running but I I never except for that race which I ran every year I didn't compete mm-hmm. um running just got to be this private thing for me and again because my parents could have cared less whether I ran or not they never troubled me with it so I got to have my own relationship with it which I think now as a parent it's so important to let our kids develop their own relationship with things right. rather than us you know, foisting an agenda on them or ambition or goals. And so um, running from a very young age was really tied to writing for me. And um, I wanted to become a writer from about, probably not coincidentally, the same age that I started running. And, um, when I moved my body and it wasn't in wilderness then I grew up in suburban New Jersey, (laughs) you know, but that's a different kind of wilderness, right? Like the (laughs) I would just run around the block or ride my bike and, or shoot hoops. And when I did those physical activities, I would kind of lose myself in the motion and in the movement. And my imagination would sort of respond and kind of loosen with the activity. And I would um, tap into this, um storytelling side of myself. So as I moved I would tell stories. So mm-hmm. so that's what the running has really been for much of my life was just a way to be a writer and a way to tell a way to jumpstart my imagination.
0: That's so and, interesting. Yeah. I mean I, I get that feeling too. I come up with the best ideas when I'm moving, when I'm exercising or And you're
1: not trying to, right? No. Like I you probably are like me, you never set out like I'm going to go on this run and I'm going to use the run to think of X, Y, and Z. Sometimes I might have that intention, like, oh, I want to sort of, I'm stuck on something in my writing and um, maybe I'll, I'll come through it on my run. But it's, it's never like an analytical process. It's right. just, it is that sort of moving daydream, that really f- fruitful um, way that we are when we're not thinking about the thing we should be thinking about or and then when we're free from those thoughts is when we have those breakthroughs. Yeah. When we can get our kind of thinking, rational brain out of the picture, we're so much more fluid right, and creative.
0: So how did kind of, you ran your whole life, but then with your father's passing and your, your second child being born, how did that change? Like how did going into the woods kind of, change everything because then you became competitive right right when you started competing yes
1: that's when I started doing I mean I had competed maybe a race every you know once a year kind of just in that same model as I had as a child like kind of just a lark and I would usually do really well and I'd be like I'd have a moment where I'd think "Hmm, I guess I'm kind of good at this maybe I should keep going but then I would just go back to the way I run which was just you know, I ran a lot, but it was just for myself. And, and so really, when I was um, in that initial, I just call it kind of the triage, triage phase of my grief when I thought I was dying. And I mean, I would hear something, I could hear like a news report of a rare disease on the, you know, radio or read like the first line of a newspaper story. And I would feel like I had that. Mm-hmm. Um and so that lasted about 18 months. So in that period of time, I was just really running to survive. And um, when I ran, I could, you know, after a certain amount of time passed while running, I would sort of move beyond those thoughts and that worry. And I would just become embodied, a physical, you know, my body would take over and my my thoughts would drop away and, you know, the brain, the, the thinking mind can come up with lots of stories, some of which are helpful and some of which are not helpful, you know, and um, but the body usually tells the truth. Right. And so my body was telling me I was strong and that I could keep going. Um, and um, gradually I began to believe that. Right. So I began to believe that my body um, was healthy and, um, I certainly felt that when I ran and when I would finish running, I, the anxieties would come back. So it wasn't mm-hmm. that the running totally cured me of it, but it helped me manage it.
0: But I think and, this is so important for people to hear because you had young children and you went out and did what you felt you had to mm-hmm. do to survive yes. to thrive and to try and get past. And so yeah. many times women are guilted. Yes. For taking time for doing what they need to do, yes. whether it's going back to work, like some women have to go back to work to survive. And some women have to go run and some people have to yes. weight. And that is so underplayed. Because I know when I my kids are 14 months apart, and they were bam, bam. And when my daughter was six weeks old, I was like, I have to go back to work or I'm not going to survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's where I was at that time. Then I later started you know, using exercise and, and triathlon for that, but people, women need that sometimes, right?
1: And our and I think culturally, we're not always given, you know, the message is not um, always supportive of that. And yeah. that there's and so I feel like there's guilt, external guilt that we or may it's feel. like a
0: vanity thing. People think it's a vanity thing, right? People think, like, yeah,
1: yeah, or people thinking it's a you know, especially with things like running, they love to think it's like an obsession Mm -hmm. or, um, rather than like just a very, um, profound and, um, you know, kind, effective way, you know, effective piece of self care. I mean, I, that word or that phrase is such a buzz right now, but it is. And, um, you know, it, it is how I care for myself. It's also how I love myself, you know, I'm always most comfortable in my own skin, you know, and most content with who I am when I'm on the top of a mountain or filthy or tired, you know, I'm pushing past my perceived limits. And so when I can do that and care for myself in that way and love myself in that way, I can love my family better and I can take care of them better. And, um, So that, but it's still kind of a radical notion. And when I, so when I was first running and my, my, my younger daughter, Maisie was just a baby and I was, you know, thought I was dying and I was going out running, um, I would just go out, you know, for an hour. I had no plan. But as I, you know, saw that it was making me, it was helping me to feel better, um, I started wondering, well how far could I go and what am I capable of? And that wasn't sort of like trying to get into races and prove myself with wins or victories, but it was more it was a curiosity about my both my physical stamina but also my emotional stamina because that's really what ultra distance running or ultra running teaches you or is how to tolerate uncertainty. Because when you're out yeah. for running long distances, say thirty miles or fifty miles or a hundred miles, right? You there's so many variables that you cannot predict, which is is a really a metaphor for life. You know, we think we have things under control, and people love to do like, "What's your five year plan?" and "What's the, <laughs> you know, where are you going? Where do you see yourself?" And you know, we live with that illusion of control. Um, and some of that's a necessary illusion, right? Because otherwise we might sort of be paralyzed with, you know, fear with what's around the next bend. But um a lot it's just an illusion because then when you do when you do lose someone, you know, as I had lost my dad pretty rapidly, um, without a lot of warning, um, you realize that we don't have control. And so that anything can happen and and may happen at any point. And and so really I think my my attraction to those ultra distances was just like really learning to tolerate that uncertainty and to not know what was around the next bend or what the weather would bring, but trying to be prepared for it and trying um, to really teach myself how to weather those, literal ups and downs on the trails and that that are so similar to life.
0: So I never thought of ultra running as preparing for uncertainty. I've thought of it, of you know, like training yourself to endure pain and, um, but uncertainty, that's such a great way to look at it because that's it, what we're all scared of. That's
1: what we're all scared of is the not knowing. Right. And, um, you know, that's a big theme kind of in Zen Buddhism is to like embrace the not knowing and, um, there's themes of that in my book because I meet a friend who's this incredible Zen teacher who kind of comes into my life at this very serendipitous moment, um, and then becomes in the book. And this was true in life. She's sort of like that Yoda voice. Like she'll Mm -hmm. just chime in with the exact right thing you need to hear when you need to hear it. But, um, just to the larger point of not knowing, um, I think it goes against our cultural, like the way our culture is like we're expected to know things and predict and get things sorted out and have everything dialed. Right. And
0: and spread that to our children
1: and spread that to our children
0: and what they need to do too.
1: But really the not knowing if we can embrace it and kind of just open to it is sort of the most beautiful place to be because, um, Yes, some hard things might come around the next bend, but also some beautiful things and unexpected things and kind of wondrous moments that if you're always planned out and on this certain path forward with your blinders on, you're going to miss those moments. And so really ultra running and losing my father and becoming a mother, right? They're very similar things, are, have taught me how, it's training for how to be in that not knowing and to just open to it and, and to kind of even be grateful for it. You know, there were many times even writing this book when I thought I needed to know what was going to happen with the book and how it was going to play out or what I was going to, you know, how I was going to do the next chapter. I mean, it's great for writing too, you know, this not knowing. And I would try to be, um, I would fool myself into thinking for a minute that I was going to be the boss of the book.
0: <laughs> right? And
1: whenever that happened, invariably, and it didn't happen that often because I would catch myself, but when it happened, I would just hit the wall and I would, you know, you just crash into this wall that you've made for yourself because, um, I couldn't, you know, I would shut myself by trying to control the book. I would shut myself down to the flow of the book and the book you know, always had its own energy, right. and my job was just to sort of harness it and ride that energy and let it flow, um, and not enforce my own will upon it.
0: Um, it's really hard because I know when I gave my book proposal for the new book I've got coming out, you know, they want to know what you're going oh, to write. They want to know. They want to know chapter by chapter. Yeah, yeah, and I went off for chapters completely yeah. off path. And, you know, yeah. I sent it to my editor and I was like, I'm real sorry about this. And she's like, oh, no. And then she said, well, just let me read it. And I did. And she's like, keep going. You know, but at that moment, if I had tried to constrain it to what right. I had originally thought it was supposed to be, it would not be what it is.
1: Well, and also if you map it all out in advance, and I think there are some writers who do that and and there are also some runners who do that successfully. They map out their training for two months in advance or whatever. That's just not my flow, and that's really not how I, you know, am in my highest creative state. But um, I think sometimes the risk you run when you map it all out is that you will miss those the moments of serendipity. Like my friend, the Buddhist, coming into my life. She was just walking down the street one day. She's quite a well known author herself. She's written fifteen books, and her, probably her best known book is Writing Down the Bones. Uh, her name's Natalie Goldberg, and but. she was just walking down the street, like in her Zen, you know, Buddhist way, like with her hands (laughs) clasped, very serene. And you know, I could have easily just buzzed right by or not thought twice. But I I was paying enough attention to know that this was this moment that was going to mean something to me. And I didn't know what I just had this feeling and I write about it. And running home. But I had this feeling when I saw her that we would be friends. I had no idea why I had that feeling. I mean, she's a very well known writer and lots of people kind of want her time. And um, But I just saw her and I thought, we'll be friends someday. And um, sure enough, eventually that came to pass. But I think that that's tapping into that intuition that we have inside of us that is so strong, but we forget, we, we forget how to listen to it. And, um, it can really guide us in the right direction if we slow down and pay attention. Um, but our life is so busy right now. Right. And we're, you know, we're relying on these screens, these things external from us, like our devices and our screens. And, um, and we're kind of like, these automatrons like,
0: yeah, that's what I was going to say. We're, we're relying on our autopilot that we've created at some point too. We don't even know why we created it.
1: And we lose touch with that inner voice that has that knowing, right? So there's that inner knowing that, kind of works in conjunction with the larger not knowing. So it's like, you want to be in in kind of a balance with the two, like tapping into your, your voice. I mean, that was really that my intuition was like running feels good. Go do it. Even though on the surface, like I was saying, it didn't make a lot of sense. I was afraid and why go run alone, you know, and put yourself at some exposure to risk by being alone in the mountains. Um, But it was, it was just that voice inside, you know, it was, it was instinct, um, and I'm glad I listened because there's lots of reasons. Society saying like, "Don't leave your children," you know, "You're irresponsible." Don't go alone; it's dangerous for women. You know, there's lots of voices that I could have listened to. My own voice, you know, "You're dying," um, and I think ultimately that's the message of of running home is that um, we can be in charge of the stories we tell ourselves, and we can make them positive versus, you know, listening to the stories that aren't supportive, and aren't conducive to growth. And, um, but it's taken me a long time, like my whole life to figure that out that, oh, wait, I can, I can, you know, tell the stories that I want to live.
0: Right, right. I loved them. Um, and Brene Brown, she has that Netflix special, she was talking about where she was having a conversation with her husband and she had to ask herself, like, what story am I telling right mm-hmm. now? Because he did something and she took it one way and she made up this whole story about it, how he uh. didn't, she didn't believe he was he thought she was attractive. And ever since I watched that, I've really thought about sort of my relationship to people in the world or, or you know, it, with my publisher or whatever, when right. something happens or doesn't. And I'm like, OK, what story am I telling myself right now about what is happening? Right, and, and you we stop and listen. It's kind of freaky. We're really neurotic.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, we tell stories all the time, and some of them have zero basis in reality. Right. Um, but you know, it's also the storytelling impulse. You know, I'll just flip that story on its head. That like we make trouble for ourselves by telling stories. The, it, the flip side of that is that that's really our, you know, that's an, our imagination, and our imagination is such a powerful tool especially like for you and I who are writers or other artists or creative types out there, like it's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, being able to tell stories about ourselves is an indication that we have a healthy imagination. It's just that like, let's make sure we're telling ourselves the right stories, Right. right. (laughs) you know, not the story of like I'm dying of a rare disease when in fact I just ran 30 miles, you know, that's not a productive story. Um, so let's but, talk
0: about the competition. Yeah. I mean, you really have quite quite a resume, including <laughs> the win at Leadville last year. I can't even fathom that. I know. I, I mean, hundred mile trail race, you guys. Let's just talk about. I don't want to drive that far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, driving is harder. I driving like. is
0: harder. You're you're crazy.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. So you know, I got through that initial like triage period of running, and I kind of came through it. And I had this suddenly, I was back. And it was like, I popped out of that grief bubble. And I was also inside the baby bubble, right? Like if after you have a baby, you're sort of in that fog for a while. And it's sort of beautiful, but also like time moves at a different pace. But then eventually you pop out and you know it all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I'm out. I'm out of the bubble. And so I popped out of both of those, like about 18 months after my dad died. And um, I had this new understanding that I would die too someday and hopefully not for a very long time. Like the acute anxiety had sort of subsided, but I still knew like, okay, if I'm going to die, like I want to live. And I had this moment where I realized that we were on this river trip. We take our children out into the back country a lot. And um, rivers are really powerful places for me because they sort of symbolize that flow state that we were talking about a little bit earlier of just being in the flow with and not pushing against or resisting life, but tapping into this larger energy. And, um, so I was on a river and I, you know, I'd been terrified to go cause we had babies and, mm-hmm. you know, who takes their babies on rivers? Well, we do cause we've always done rivers and we're quite conservative anyway. Um, but I had this moment where finally like the second day on the river, the panic had subsided and I was just settled for the first time in probably a year and a half. And, um, I had that moment of like, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to die, I want to live first. And for me, that meant I want to see what I'm capable of as a runner. Like I knew I was, I had talent. I knew that I was, um, naturally good at running and I had been for a long time. And so it was like, okay, let's really see what we can do. And again, it wasn't about proving myself to anyone, but it was just a curiosity to see what kind of stamina I had. And, um, I was just about 40. I think I was 40 years old and I had been like nursing or pregnant for four years. You know, my baby just weaned herself and it just seemed again like that voice inside was like, try this now. And, and so I ran my first race, uh, first ultra marathon, which was a 50 kilometer or 31 miles. And I won that without, you know, that was never the goal. And, um, And and I went on to increase my distance and was you know winning pretty much at each distance, and but more than the winning because the racing and the winning are just like a you know fraction like the tiniest part of why I run. It was really um, developing that inner strength that I had been needing um, to you know that was helping me weather both the grief and just the insanity of being a mother to two young children that we all need that um inner strength and that conviction and you know as as an athlete yourself like you know the feeling you get when you have the confidence you have in your sport totally translates to the rest of your life and um I just found that I had um more tools more stamina more resilience um more self-compassion and love for myself Um, even
0: it can come when you're not talented, because I want to, because you're so very talented.
1: No, you don't have to have the results at all. I I mean, like the, the, anything, it's just the
0: the confidence in the sport. And I, you know, I am such an unaccomplished triathlete. (laughs) So like the confidence came for me, like putting in the, the promise to myself, you know, showing up because I was so kind of rotten yeah. at all the sports. And so, you know, there's, there, I think there's that component too when, when you're not accomplished, because when people hear, you know, how talented you are, and they're like, well, I can't even run, right? But it, it's there's a whole spectrum.
1: Well, of, and I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Because um, I think the recurring theme and how I run is that I've, I've never been trying to win. Like right. I I don't start training so that I can win something. It's for me. It's really about, as you were just saying, the process of yeah, showing yeah, yeah, yeah. every day and making that effort for myself, and by extension for my family. You know, because exactly. stronger I am inside, the better I am as a mother and a wife and um, and a writer. And so um, I think that I've been able to have success because I haven't put. Uh, in part because I haven't put the emphasis on being successful, right? And so, um, you know, you mentioned Leadville. That was certainly the magic of my win at Leadville was, um, you know, I just went into that race wanting to finish. And I didn't put all those expectations on myself or pressure, and I wasn't looking um, at the finish line. I mean, I wanted to finish, but I wasn't looking at the finish line in terms of any kind of goal beyond you know, making it a hundred miles, and I think when we can let go, and we free ourselves from the result, and just be in the process of training, it was such a beautiful time, like leading up to Leadville, because I just was in my body, and my spirit was strong, and I felt good, and I wasn't thinking about trying to win. Yeah. And that's a pretty special state. And again, yeah, one, that's not shocking. that our culture recognizes. You know, we're all results oriented. Right,
0: Right. But I think it's interesting you say you are in your body and that is such a new term for me because I'm learning. I've learned that through some trauma and, you know, instances from our childhood or our past, we can just kind of exit our body yes. and be a floating head is what my friend Britt Frank calls yeah. it. And, and learning, especially if you've spent a life like with not being in your body to learn to go out and exercise or connect and to feel and to step back into your body is an amazing feeling. So I like that you said that, that that was so empowering, right, to
1: be in touch with our inner power. And um, because we all have it. And I think for me, I was, um, I really grew up in my body, but with a very overactive imagination. So I had both going on at the same time. And, And so I think that's why the ultra running is good. Because at a certain point, you just the repetitive motion of your body takes over and your, your, all those busy thoughts in your brain just kind of subside, you know, they don't go away forever, but, um, it's a relief, but I'll say that to my children too. My daughters, when, um, when we go skiing, um, they they love to ski, but I'm always like ski in your body, be in your body, Mm. right? Like, So don't ski, like trying to keep up with your friends or don't ski, you know, trying to show off for the instructor ski in your body. And they, they know what I mean by now. But sometimes I'll say that in front of their, their instructors or what, and I'll get a kind of a funny look, but it's just, it's like, just be in your body. Like, you know, your body knows. Um, And, you know, when our, it's when our egos get involved that things get, you know, complicated. And
0: that's such a, I mean, that seems like such a smart safety thing to say too. Yeah. In like, your, yeah. like, your body, like do not be a crazy maniac. Yeah. Well, let's talk about body image. How mm-hmm. have you always had a good body image or was it never a thing because you just were tapped into what felt good? I mean, have yeah. you struggled oh, with that?
1: that's a great question. I have not been asked that before. Um, I think I've always had a pretty good body image mm-hmm. because it is because I have always been so physical, even as a child. Um, Like, my body was, like, my tool. Um, So it was what I used to do the things that made me feel good. Um, And because I had some um, just uneasiness at home, and and as I write about in Running Home, I was sort of split between two families, back and forth, back and forth, which, for a child, that's pretty unsettling. So I never really felt... I mean, my childhood was happy, and both my homes were happy homes, but by just bouncing back and forth, um, it's just you don't, it's this feeling of dislocation of not really feeling at home in either. So I think my body became my home. Mm, that's and certainly yeah. my imagination, my storytelling was my home. And those two have always been very strong for me as kind of grounding me, you know, even now, if I'm feeling out of sorts, I'll go for a run, or sitting to write, and my notebook has the same effect a little bit. Um, so I felt at home in my body, and it was um, it was really like how I moved, and how I moved was how I felt, and when I was moving, I could feel comfortable and myself, and so I didn't really struggle with um, body image. But I've had people um, try to tell me that that's my story right? So just going back to stories, like, or people assume that that's my story, because I'm a runner. um, And I have a lighter build. So they want to put their stories on me, which is like, oh, you must be running to stay thin.
0: Yeah,
1: you must not be eating enough. Or, and actually, when I'm really training, I eat, I mean, I'm always having seconds of everything and ice cream. And, you know, so, but that's, you know, the, the message I get is that, I must be doing it for those body reasons um, when really it's a much deeper, um, you know, as I've mentioned, it's a creative process for me running. And so um, I, I fortunately have not struggled that, with that, though I know that's very, um, it's prevalent among women. And and I think partially like not competing in my teens, um, like at the high school or college level possibly helped me with that, You know, because I know there's a lot of um, pressure on young women athletes to be a certain weight or size. Um, And because I didn't compete and didn't have a coach. I've just sort of been like a little bit of an outlier. And I think that's to my advantage.
0: Well, I just think it's, it's funny, because people want to project, everyone wants to project body image one way or another, but you may not have had body image issues, but you thought you were dying of every disease on the internet for 18 months, like, which is worse, you know?
1: Right, (laughs) right. I I mean, exactly. The comparison
0: of suffering is, is insane to me in this world. You know, people that are overweight want to hate the, the thin ones and the ones that this don't want this. Yeah. And, but we're all at our core suffering on some level from something. And then at the end of the day, like, if we can just be like, hey, you're a human too. Right. <laughs> nice to meet you. You know? Yeah,
1: exactly. Like, okay, if it's not, you know, if it's not this, it might be that. But right. right. I was thinking I was dying. And that was a form you know, of and I kind of explore this in the book a little bit of like, you know, possibly self-abuse, right? To like inflict that upon myself, like I must have this. I it that sounds more like conscious, like I was in control of it. For a while I wasn't like I I literally could just turn on the news and I would get that sinking feeling like, oh my God, I have that. Um but you know again the running has helped me understand a little bit better because when you run for long times alone you know because i do most of my running alone just logistically but also because it is a creative state for me um you know you spend a lot of time like you can watch your thoughts and it becomes this sort of meditation in that um when you do sitting meditation meditation which i i do and i have a, a practice it's not very um robust. (laughs) I don't, I can't sit, you know, I can sit, but I, I don't sit for more than like 10 minutes at a time where I can run for hours and hours at a time. But, um, you know, when you sit, the idea is not that you're going to empty your, your brain of thoughts. It's, you know, I think that's a common misperception about meditation that you're supposed to have no thoughts. The thoughts will come, but you're, you know, the idea is to see them come and let them pass. And not get attached and not start telling stories about your thoughts and kind of get gripped by them. And so um, really that's what running does because when I'm out there for three or four hours at a time, something might come up in my ankle or be like, oh, my ankle hurts. Maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm about to, you know, maybe my muscles are about to spasm and something bad's going to happen or maybe not. You know, so just, like, see that thought and let it just pass and come back to it. Like, if the ankle keeps hurting, then I give myself permission to revisit it. But, um, you know, it's really that idea of seeing the thought and then letting it pass and not getting hooked by it. Like, we, you know, it's so easy to get hooked by our thoughts. Yeah. Um, and I think in that regard, running and meditating or running and sitting are pretty similar because um, you can see your thoughts. and. Yeah. Practice letting them just float on by.
0: <laughs> so, what was your most memorable part of Leadville?
1: Oh gosh, I had so many parts. Um, one of them that just right when you said that that popped to mind was um, walking to the starting line um, with my husband Steve and my um, good friend Susie, who had come to Leadville to crew for me and the start was at 4am. So this was probably three 30 in the morning and just walking to the starting line. It was pitch black and so many emotions and nerves, but mostly excitement. Um, and, and kind of like crying a little bit with excitement and just gratitude for being there. I was overwhelmed with, with this feeling of gratitude, like everything that had preceded it, you know, there were so many odds stacked against me. Um, I had come back from this pretty serious broken leg and, you know, surgery. And my doctor was like, I would never run again if I were you. And yeah, talk about a story that lived inside my head for a long time. And so just walking down and I had this feeling of like, I can't believe I'm here at the start of my first hundred mile race and I'm healthy. You know, whatever happens is okay. Okay. Whatever happens, I will learn something from it, and that's what's running what running has taught me too is that I know if i do if I've done the work and put in that effort to get to the starting line to do my you know to do my practice to run um, that if i can if I feel confident in that, then when I show up at a race, it's like I switch into a different mode, I just go into receive mode right, so that I can let go and just receive what the day will bring. Um, because I have confidence in you know that i 've done all I can, and now it 's just sort of up to what happens, and so I love that it 's very liberating because we get to shut down that part of us that thinks we can control everything. Um, you know I certainly try to control my preparation and my training, um, but then kind of roll with what happens and that was very much my state of mind you know walking to the starting line. I just got a little bit emotional and I was overwhelmed that I had made it to the start, and I was ready for whatever would come. And I was open to it. And that was, um, I had, you know, that's a mindset uh, or, you know, sort of mental training or mindfulness that really came from, I think, um, from my meditation practice. And I think that was a really important, in hindsight, part of my training. Again, none of it was premeditated. I wasn't like, now I'm going to sit in order to train myself to win this race. Right. just felt what I, it it felt like what I needed to do. And it really served me because um, my goal for Leadville was to just flow, be in the flow as much as I could that day. And I expected I would pop out of it, right? You know, you can't be in a flow state for, I didn't think, for 20 hours um, for all of a race. Um, So, but I thought if I could be in the flow and like flow, like feel the energy of the mountains and the other runners and tap into that, much more powerful than my own energy, that I would be able to be in that flow state. And um, I figured that the longer I could be in that, the better. And then eventually, I might pop out. And then I would just sort of gut it out. And I, you know, I believed in my own resilience that I would get through it. Um, And so that was kind of my strategy. But, you know, I didn't really pop out, I kind of stayed in that flow state all day. And much of it was to do with, like, I had an amazing crew. My husband and daughters were, my husband paced me for part of it. And, you know, it was goofy and singing men-at-work songs with me. We were <laughs> having a blast. And then I would roll into aid stations and my daughters would be there in costume because my friend Susie had brought costumes. And so it was this very celebratory feel, which is what I wanted it to feel like because I I knew it was really a celebration of the journey I'd been on you know, since I broke my leg, but preceding that since I'd been in the deepest part of anxiety with my dad. And it was really like the icing on top.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, I forget what I was going to ask you. I, I got lost on costumes. I was like, Ooh, what costumes?
1: <laughs> disco, one of them was a disco, like disco, you know, she had like a sequin disco and then the other had a whoopee cushion. Oh. I know. <laughs> I was like, "Am I hallucinating? Because you know, you sort of can hallucinate right. when you run is a, a little bit." <laughs> and they kept changing costumes, but I loved it. And the crowd was going crazy, both for me because they were like, "Who is this person?" But also for my children, they love. You know, they loved. Right. They love that energy. And well, I mean, I
0: think, I think it's important to note that you finished first, female, but you were eleventh overall. I know, out of I, all the people.
1: Yeah, more than eight 800- hundred whoopee
0: cushions. All of them.
1: <laughs> I know, and. It was it was pretty extraordinary. It was um everything converged that day and it you know it was really like the full expression of my life as a runner and as a writer and as a mother. And so all those things aligned and I had this kind of just unlimited power. Um and I know it was magic. You know, I obviously had done the work, but um I think so much of it was I was just I was so grateful. I felt this incredible humility for the mountains, you know, like, um, and, and those now I understand are pieces for me, you know, prerequisites to be in that flow state is, you know, both preparation, like not just winging it, but doing the work, showing up, but feeling super grateful, humble, and also having a sense of humor. Those are Mm -hmm. big pieces for me, you know, like. And that's what kids are good for, right? right. The
0: end, just mean, they it. force it. They've, they've, right? You have to laugh or you'll just lay down and cry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you
1: have two choices. You might as well laugh.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. That's, my husband is, you know, really my secret weapon. That's a huge part of our marriage is that humor. And uh, um, I think that that is a big reason for my success. Because, you know, if you just take things too seriously, it's going to start to feel like work. And then it's going to be a grind. You're going to feel hurt, you are going to get injured. And then, you know, it's just, it's not a good, good scenario.
0: We have a joke in our house. Anytime I get anything new, mm-hmm. one of the children will one either have to have that thing, mm-hmm. the exact thing that I have bought new, or <laughs> they will take it and destroy it. And <laughs> And I'll go looking for something. I'm like, can I, you know, do you have my thing? And they're like, no. And then it'll be under their bed, you know. And it's just Ugh. a joke, like, that I can't have anything that belongs to me mm. anymore since I've had kids. Because they just have-, have to take it all. And I have to laugh because... I mean, otherwise it's, it's like, you're going to lose your mind.
1: (laughs) Yes, you have to laugh. And that, that even like when I was in the sort of darkest like despair over losing my father and having this new baby and the postpartum anxiety, my husband was always that sort of super low key comic relief. And um, he really like, he comes across that way in the book and that's really how he was like I would think I was dying and he would just give me this like a little one liner that like, I couldn't help but laugh at. And, um, so humor I think is, is really underrated and just, you know, as athletes, like we need to be able to laugh at our, I mean, in all of life, but specifically like for sports performance, it's like you just, if, when you start to take yourself too seriously, that's a big you know red flag.
0: Right. Right. So this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning that we yeah. all have the same 24 hours perhaps to do Lead Villain, um, <laughs> <laughs> but Yay. what we do in those 24 hours is what kind of makes our health, happiness, and success, you know, on track, the mm-hmm. greatest it can be. So I like to ask my guest what is something that they do on a daily basis that they can kind of point to that makes the best of their 24 hours.
1: Wow. Okay. Just one thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, okay. I have a or couple two. You can have Yeah, two.
1: I mean, running is usually part of my day or I'll yeah. just be a little bit more generous and just say being in motion. So whether it's riding my bike or running or, but in that um, fluid, creative state, like to move my body is so important. That just jumpstarts everything else. It jumpstarts my imagination. It makes me a more empathetic, patient mother. You know, I think that a day without being in motion is not a great day for me. Um and then the other piece is um, more of sitting. And so it's either writing in my notebook. Um, I just keep daily notebooks. I guess some people call them journals or diaries, but, I just call them notebooks and a good day for me involves either um, sitting and writing in my notebook for maybe 15 or 20 minutes um, or doing sitting meditation, again, for like eight or 10 minutes. um, And often often those two things go hand in hand. I do a little sitting and then I do a little writing and then I'll do a run. And that's kind of a really good um, recipe for both a creative day, but also a very grounded day and just a better day as a mother. (laughs) It's so
0: true. You keep coming back to as a mother, but it's so true. Like, I come back to my children much better. Yeah. It takes off that edge where you want to just kind of fly off the handle. Right. That goes away. When they've asked the same question 50 times in a row and you've answered it 51, you, you can answer it one more time without losing exactly right (laughs) that's what it is
1: right so being in motion and sitting and then writing you know I think are my um kind of the secret recipe for success
0: well thank you so much Katie her book running home is available everywhere and um I guess one of the one more question is is what what is next do you have any other plans Yes. Competitiveness.
1: Um, um, Yes, I am doing some bigger races later this summer. Um, The plan is to go over to Europe and race um, CCC, which is part of the Ultra Tour de Mont Blanc series, and it's um, 62 miles in the Alps. And then I've got some bigger races um, coming up. Um, I'm kind of just coming off a really busy spring of book touring and racing, which I guess I decided to do both at the same time. Which, um, and um, so I've got some races, yeah. And I'm starting to work on next book di- next book ideas, and I want to write fiction. And so it's it's good. It's you know when my running is flowing, my writing usually is, and vice versa. It's a nice um, feedback loop
0: awesome. Well, we'll look forward to seeing how you do in the Alps. That's exciting.
1: Thanks so much for your time.
0: Take care, Katie.
1: Okay, bye.